Well, welcome, Jill. Welcome to The Real Talk. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited to have you on. I know we've been, we connect, we've been connected. I've known, I know, I know about PCX, I know about you, and uh, we actually connected, got closer, got to know each other more, shared a lot of insights, market insights, and it's, it's, uh, it's, in our industry, it's hard to like, you know, because people think, are we, you know, this the electronics distribution industry itself, it's kind of, kind of a segue. Everybody, company working on their own, they're trying to think, oh, someone's being a competition or trying, someone's time to be like, take my business. This is how it traditionally in the last, I would say, um, 20, 30, 40 years ago, a lot of that kind of ego was there. Companies don't want to communicate. They think they're stealing from each other. But today in present day, I think the whole ecosystem, not just in our industry, in the world has changed that we all grow stronger together and collaborate together, you know, and it's, um, and I'm just really happy that we came to this and have you on the real talk today and bring you on to tell your story and really learn about, you know, yourself, how, you know, how you got here, how to start PCX, your industry, how you got in electronics industry, distribution industry, you know, how you made your way and how you are actually a thought leader in this industry. And I was very impressed with the knowledge, the insights you have, the experiences you have, a lot of the wisdom that you can share with a lot of people out there. And that's why I love to invite you on the real talk to really just share that and uh, share some of that. So why don't you start and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into where you are today. Well, it's actually an interesting story. Um, I went to UC Riverside uh -huh. and my first business was a contracting business, uh -huh. which uh, I was involved in for five years. Um, and though it was a very interesting industry, the thing about contracting is even if a customer thinks you're great, even if a customer thinks you're great, um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, how many times can you get their roof done? How many times can you get your house painted, yeah. right? So th in terms of the repeat business, it really wasn't there. So uh, I realized that and um, started casting about for a different business I could get involved with. Mm -hmm. And I um, started calling uh, distributors. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I started doing that is my father owned uh, a small OEM and he would buy from distributors when factory couldn't deliver. And he said, you know, they all hustle. I don't know how they do it. Mm -hmm. They find parts for me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have to pay a little more, yeah. but it's worth it because I can build my stuff. And, uh, they, this industry reminds me of you, you, you hustle and you like to help people. This is all you. So I called a couple companies and there's a company, um, called price point, which doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, the owner price point was a guy that I went to high school with mm -hmm. and I called him up and I said, Hey, you know, um, uh, I, I'm looking to maybe come to work for you yeah. and learn the business. And, uh, he said, well, let me have you talk to my director of sales. And I'm talking to this guy, Brent. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, after about 10 minutes, he goes, wait a minute, is this Gil Weiserat? Dummy, this is Brent Wood, which was one of my closest yeah. friends in high school. And you know how sometimes you, you know what your friends do, but you don't know what yeah. your friends do? And uh, he said, you know, I, I was going to start my own gig, but if you're, if you're game, I'll come work for you and show you the ropes. And that's how PCX started. And I actually started the business in December of 1993. Um, my warehouse consisted of a shelf in my parents' spare bedroom. Yeah. And... Uh, and it, it grew from there. And so. as you say, that's that's the story everybody started. You know, a lot of lot of big entrepreneurs these days started in their homes, started in their parents' house, in the garage. I have an idea out of something to, and that's, 
I love that, you know, because it really says where you started from, how you got there. So started in the garage, you know, got into the distribution or uh, supporting because, of course, you had a little bit of background from your family, from your father being OEM side or manufacturing in general. True. And then, um, so how, how did that start from that point on? Well, it's interesting because uh, back then, within about six months, my parents lived in a townhome complex mm -hmm. and UPS trucks were coming every day and mm -hmm. FedEx trucks were coming every day and the association sent them a nasty a nasty love note saying, you can't operate a business out of your home. Mm -hmm. Totally different yeah. world than today, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, and they basically said, you got 30 days to vamoose. Oh, wow. So we got a small office, mm -hmm. and then we needed a bigger office, and yeah. then we needed a warehouse, and to where we're at today. Uh, let me see, 27 years later. So it's been really good to us, and uh, I feel like even though we've been at it for 27 years because of uh, – the digital marketplace yeah. and the way of the of the world, um, you almost have to be a new company every few years. Yeah, you rebrand re yourself, especially today in this decade. I mean, three decades. You're almost business for three decades, which is very. I mean, congratulations. I mean, three decades. This is a long time for any business to be, especially to go through the ups and downs in the world. Because um, when you started, probably it was fax machines. Oh yeah, yeah, fax machines, and you're you're dialing. You're just dialing numbers and putting faxes, right? So how, how so how was the communication back then? To compare to now, so you started basically, right? Just putting quotations on fax machines and... Uh, it's really funny, yeah. actually. Uh, when we first started out, everybody had two phones on their desk mm -hmm. and uh, two notebooks. One notebook with requirements and another notebook with offers <laughs> from the factory. Yeah. And you'd flip back and forth, mm -hmm. so you had to have a good mind for numbers. And from a marketing perspective, uh, we were spending about $10,000 a month um, just doing faxes on six fax machines... 24 hours a day, yeah. sending out our offers mm -hmm. to OEMs around the yeah. country. Uh, obviously, the internet revolutionized that, yeah. and that expense went away. But it's it, in a lot of ways, it's much the same. Uh, understanding what your client needs are and communicating those and understanding that the, the market changes constantly and adjusting to those changes is critical to survival. And to your point, we've been through some pretty uh, hard ups and downs over the years, mm -hmm. but... Uh, we're still here and we're doing great and very grateful. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, that, that story is always that wisdom to the trials and tribulations you go through through business um, and, and coming up that it, it is because I know you went through 93s and then they had the dot com in 2000s where probably it just you, it's, you can't compare it to what's happening now because it was a similar, but it just was the dot com era where there was a massive search, everything online, the Amazons and all the e-commerce was big and components pricing and everything searched again and i think that was probably a very fruitful or very uh good time for business as well for a lot of companies in industry distribution it was yeah um i, I can say that you know the as we all know today we're facing uh worldwide supply chain shortages and challenges mm -hmm. um unprecedented really for a variety of reasons yeah. and i believe that part of the reason that we've gotten to this place we're at now is um the whole concept of just in time mm -hmm. Uh, the the reality is is just in time works really great when you have two to eight week deliveries. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work so great when that's no longer the case, uh, and and we recognize that um, mid year last year that it was coming down the pike because we could just tell we started getting notices that things yeah. were going pushed out, and then the trade war with China happened, mm -hmm. and is continuing, and then a, you. You overlay that with with the challenges associated with COVID, and 
it's a recipe for uh, for a lot of pain in the supply chain, and we're happy to be here to help our our clients as much as we can. Yeah, I know through that it's 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 very challenging because everybody needs to put a fire out. You know, it's all industries. It's not electronics. It's every industry is having these challenges. You know, and we're all facing it. You know, it's it's because um, again, all medium small businesses, large businesses, it's it's capital because if you can't ship your product out the door, whatever whatever widget or gadget you make, product you make, you can't invoice, you can't get cash in, you can't pay your P team, you can't put you can't pay your staff, you can't pay payroll, your expenses. And a lot of smaller or mid-sized companies, they work off that because they make a gadget, they make a product, whatever it can be. It can be electronic or it can be a wood good, any type of good. And if they can't get one component, one piece to be able to ship that out to their customer, they can't get any money coming in. And they can only last so much long, so long without any type of revenue coming in. And it, it's um, it's a pain point for a lot of people out there. The whole, the whole global industry is facing that. Um, so I wanted to take a step back to um, say like the 90s and 2000s and how PCA really made its place in, in the industry and what really you saw added value service you created to create the company, to build that relationship and have three decades of business. Really, what was your trajectory? What was your mission and goals you had with PCX? We've changed a lot. Mm -hmm. So when we first started, uh, we were um, really um, specializing in the disposition of surplus material. Okay. And yeah. so helping manage uh, surplus inventories. Okay. And initially it was done virtually. And then eventually when we got a larger warehouse mm -hmm. space, we, be we became uh, the, the title owners, if you will, of the material, usually on a rev share okay. agreement. And as we grew and became more profitable, we started buying inventories outright. Um, since just in time really took off about 2006 through the present day before mm -hmm. this current shortage, uh, there wasn't an awful lot of, of surplus material yeah. out there. So we started adding uh, factory lines mm -hmm. and a real specialty around quality inspection. Mm -hmm. um, we, as a company, got burned by a counterfeit material yeah. uh, from Maxim back in uh, 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, the chips looked great, the paperwork looked great, the markings looked perfect, mm -hmm. everything was fine, passed our QC, no issue. We ship them to our customer. They call us a few weeks later, and when they finally put them on the board and said, hey, yeah. these aren't working, well, it ends up we sent them to a lab, analyzed them. There wasn't even the guts. It was just yeah. basically the encapsulation, right? No no integrated oh, circuit man. inside. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, the folks that we bought it from uh, disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so that was our first foray into the concept of, of almost becoming like a lab. Mm -hmm. We bought our first x-ray machine at that point, um, quickly followed by XRF mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So the, the specialty that we developed was a very, very focused understanding of um, corroborating factors to either prove or disprove whether a component was um, valid or not. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're dealing with the open market, which right, right. that's where everyone's getting most of their product right now. Yeah. So the, the understanding of, of that part of the marketplace as it relates to surplus material and making sure that you don't assume or presume that it is, that it is um, legitimate material is a, is a key component of our business today. Yeah, uh, I can add to that is back in the 2005, 2004, in the early, that was the start of the big counterfeits coming out of, especially a lot of Asia. I mean, China pushed that a lot of recycled product people, I mean, they're masters, they're recycling product, they're refurbishing, remarking, and that was, I think the quality assurance side came to life 
lot of the government standards start coming in, not just ISO, the AS, the, the, the boards, the guide depth boards, the process boards, because these parts weren't just going to commercial, they're going to aerospace and defense products. And I think that was the big eye-opener for a lot of people. It's like these components, well, how is our supply chain working? And there is a gap for, you know, there's distribution, there's a hybrid distributors, the brokers, the back and forth, independent distributors. There is a need for everybody in that in that in ecosystem, right? So, and it was kind of, um, ha- it was... It was kind of put a tarnish on a lot of people. It's like, oh, where's the traceability, factory traceability, the parts coming through, or how, what's your QC system coming to play? And a lot of big customers started putting all their approved vendor lists and processes do you have in play. And as I said, you, I think, maybe one of the company, one of many other companies had to invest in the quality assurance because probably some of your customers audited you. What are you doing for processes, right? How are you selling us the parts? Because they liked your service. They probably loved the company. Relationship was there. Problems. They hired people outside consultants say, hey, you have to have X, Y, and Z now We're, you know, for quality assurance through the processes, flow processes that come through from here's our PO, you know, especially if you sell the aerospace and defense. You know, so I, I agree to that. It, it was challenging because I think a lot of people had to pivot. A lot of small companies had to pivot. A lot of people couldn't withstand that because they didn't have the capital. They didn't have the know-how. They were just traders. They weren't a legitimate company that have infrastructure and processes in play. I mean, back now it's the IS, the ISO is, was the big player, but now more of the AS standards have come into play because those are more government regulated um, to have those standards to be a quality supplier into any type of production. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the, the, the historical aspect to uh, the cycle of knockoffs. Because yeah. when, you, when you think about, you know, counterfeit as a is a really big term, Correct. and it's often overused or incorrectly mm-hmm. used in describing a, a situation. Sometimes we have a customer that says, oh, um, and this is an issue right now, a lot of the ODMs um, will say, well, they won't ask about the part. They'll say, well, where'd you get the part? Yeah. And if it didn't come from their normal channel, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, must be counterfeit. Yes, right? yes. Uh, that's happened to us quite a few times. And so you, you understand that and you take appropriate measures to, to prove the provenance of your material so that you can be protected against the, some of the uh, uh, ODM players that are not playing very straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look back historically, uh, Japan um, was the first one to really engage heavily into knocking, knocking stuff off. I'm using air quotes. Yeah. Uh, and their material wasn't well respected. It was low grade, low quality. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you know, Japanese electronic materials viewed as some of the best on yes. the planet. Then that shifted over to South Korea. Mm-hmm. Same kind of transition. You know, South Korean product was viewed as lower grade, cheaper, not good quality, uh, and so forth. And then over time, it got to be uh, incredibly good. And it is. Um, uh, regarded as some of the best it's tier one it's a tier one product exactly yeah, one. i mean th- yeah yeah and then now china is going yeah. i think through the exact same much larger market um but i think uh, i think that we're going to see a slow but steady move to to better and better quality and a respect for ip yes uh the 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 big difference between uh korea and japan versus china is that those nationalities have uh culturally a respect for IP, China um, by and large does not. And so until they get to the point where societally, governmentally, there's a respect and regard for intellectual property, 
um, the ongoing problem with knockoffs coming out of China is going to continue. I think that the normal trajectory of going from knocking off to developing your own product is going to go much slower overall. All to say that I believe that the challenges with sourcing from China is going to be a longer trajectory from uh, knockoff to legitimate products of their own. So we're we're in for these challenges for probably another ten years, easy. Yeah, I want to I want to uh, back that a little bit because of course my my stint of traveling for about 20 years in China and understanding the culture and seeing the changes happen, especially like in, in all the electronics were Shenzhen. Shenzhen, Guangdong province were heavily electronic focused, especially in the beginning where when Hong Kong, a lot of stuff from 1997 transferred from Hong Kong manufacturing to China. And there was a lot of farm town, they started building factories and you can see because the, the demographic of people didn't have a infrastructure, a government, a really, and they were kind of like red capitalists, as you call them. They're red capitalists. They, they have this drive, and they're they're traders in general. They're just natural traders. Everybody's a salesperson. They're hungry, so that counterfeits really came in that point because they, they were masters at and they even counterfeit. This is substandard parts or refurbished parts. You know, you know, back in the day, I didn't even know here, a lot of refurbs were, it's a big market back in 90s and 2000s was a refurb market. People would use refurbs, but then refurbs now are, are stereotyped as counterfeit. Actually, they're not. They're just parts that were pulled, they're refurbished, they're retinned, and they actually can operate because a lot of the, the legacy products that go into the air defense site, they use some of these products. So, but as today, still refurbs is, as you say, that category, it's stereotyped as a counterfeit. It's actually not a counterfeit, it's just been used just like a used car they make it you know and then they have certificates they approve it they have that you know just like a cpo by used car has that, which is funny you put that analogy to a lot of people don't get it but it is but taken back to china um yeah they got masters at it but they started taking shortcuts and they didn't have that culture the the business aptitude but as if you go from say 1990s to today they become a first world economy a first world country and they have infrastructure they have this and for them to grow they have to have these policies in place because they can't be stealing from each other they can't steal ip i think the government realizes that too they're help they're trying to crack down as much as they can because they they don't want to be known as much as people think china steals does this but they still want to be known as a great power they have this this gray area around their name all the time they can't be rise to the top like we are legitimate you know as a tourist as a business tourist traveling there business person traveling there been present day before prior to covid i felt very safe why because they watch everybody they want to make sure your experience is right they will make sure there's no theft there's nothing to, especially recently nothing they watch you and you they want to make sure that your experience in china is not an experience that you go home and tell that was a i got mugged i got this everything's clean they move the people around they do whatever they can to be hospitable to their foreigner because of course the foreigners are given the insight to build the infrastructure. They in Chinese they invested in Europeans, American innovation process. Of course, they take it to the next level. They do the IP wasn't you know they they took a lot of IP. They use it for low ecosystems. But in general, it's a safe place because they want they don't want to be known as the place of rickshaws. The, or of course these festivals they have the food, the different types of exotic foods they eat. Um, everybody, that's the first question. Did you have dog or deep or anything there? And that's the first people people ask me about China. You know, right. it's the, the stereotype. But they don't want to be known for that. They want to be known as like what Japan is. You know, everybody, oh, what's Japan? Oh, so nice, beautiful, Tokyo, Japan, the food, Japanese food, right? So I can see their long-term vision that they want to be there, but it's hard because when you have a population of 1.4 billion people, 
to change that mentality, change the culture, it's hard for them. But you got to give it to them as, just like you say, them wanting to be that first world country, bring the grade up of production, be sustainable. And today, 70% of our raw material, indirect material, in some way, form, or shape, comes from China. And we cannot ignore that because it is there. You know, something from some component, whatever product you have, something comes from there or part of it. So it is very fascinating to me um, uh, of really that he put that, and I didn't even realize it put it, Japan was there at this grade, now put South Korea, and now China is the next to bring out the product and bring their, their stuff to the, uh, so to the U.S. standard, as you would call it, the Western standard. I, I'll say this. Um, if I have my crystal ball hat yeah. on, I'd say that uh, um, India will be next. There's still a lot of knocking off going on yeah. in India. And then it'll migrate over to the African continent. Africa. The, I think the cycles will be shorter, but I think we're in for knockoffs for probably the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a vexing problem, and, and it's part of what's causing so much heartburn in the, in the supply chain. And everybody's not even components and purses, goods, shoes. You see it. You can see it all the co- in billions and millions of dollars of counterfeits. Meat. Meat, yeah. Clothes. Yeah. You name it. As technology moves and we get into that, the traceability comes to play. It's how do we have tr- traceability, just like the supply chain's kind of broken. It wasn't communicating just in time factor. Systems don't communicate. Data is not clean. But it comes to the traceability aspect of it. And today, I think in the future, my prediction, get your insight. I think um, the technology today, like blockchain, the journal, open DeFi central journal system that you can actually run things to that can check data points of where a product went and it's coded. And now instead of having a traceable CFC document or where this thing originated from, you have all this paperwork that can be easily counterfeited. It's traced. And within seconds, you can find out where that thing, where it went to, just like I said, foods, because foods is a big issue for counterfeits. Fit, I mean, fish and meat are being counterfeited. It's, it's unbelievable, and that's a big thing that, because we consume that, we eat it, it's counterfeit, it could kill, I mean, possibly injure us or harm us or kill somebody. And how do we have traceability on that? And through some of these technologies like blockchain and the new processes out there that can find out the homes and track the systems can really, I mean, what's your thoughts about that? I think there's room for it. Um, Like anything, we have a saying uh, at PCX, it it always works on the whiteboard. Yeah, the theory. (laughs) The theory always works. It really does. It looks great on a whiteboard. But the second you you, uh, translate that whiteboard work into actual execution, uh, when the rubber meets the road, that's when you have some some potholes you didn't anticipate and and other challenges. Mm -hmm. I think that blockchain is the future of traceability. Um, unfortunately, there's such a massive proliferation of blockchains around the country, and some of them from, um, I don't want to call them bad actors, but let's just say blockchain coming out of Russia, mm-hmm. blockchain coming out of some of the Eastern European countries uh, that are not made for any other purpose than nefarious. Yeah. And the challenge with that, of course, is it's competing with, with organizations that have the opposite intent. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be, um, there's going to have to be some gold standards. The government's probably going to have to be involved in setting some of those standards on blockchain. The challenge, of course, on that is part of the allure of blockchain is um, 
the ability to be anonymous. Yeah. So how do you reconcile yeah. the, the anonymity yeah. anonymity with traceability? Yeah, so it's yeah. it's kind of the immovable object getting struck by the unstoppable object. You know, there's it's an impossible situation. So I, I think we'll work through it. Human beings are are clever animals, but uh, uh, I do feel that that could possibly be the answer. Another answer uh, in the short term anyways is uh, we're seeing a, a radical increase in onshoring. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel that um, that we may have gone, American society may have gone a little bit too far over the edge of, of offshoring and, and uh, using subcontractors for material, and that's kind of uh, bit us in the rear. And you're seeing some movements to try and reshore. I don't know how successful that'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that may be a little bit naive <laughs> uh, and and not really realistic. But it's it's a dynamic situation, and um, where there's dynamic situations for for clever distributors and manufacturers, there's real opportunity for success. So uh, I, I welcome this chaos as an opportunity to to. Um, bring more and more value to our clients and for others like us to do the same. Yeah. I mean, going down that, I mean, kind of down that path of onshoring, what's your thought? I mean, I think the big factor was wall street pushing a lot of companies to maximize profitability and and top line to get those squeeze those just in time. Everything is less liability in your books, all that process. I think wall street and ourselves agreed had to do a lot with that where we transferred a lot of technology overseas to be produced. And we just, brought it here for distribution to the end user you know um what's your thoughts about that do you think that's one of the big drivers and do you think that the margins or people are going to we're going to start relooking at that ecosystem of how manufacturing is done you know it's such a complex question because um it's suffused with um government regulation as it relates to employment for example mm-hmm. The, the more complex you make tax regulations, employee regulations, um, corporate governance regulations, the more that costs. So th- those costs have to be, have to be um, uh, taken care of somehow. So th- in my view, that, that pushes us to offshore and try and minimize our production costs. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's all the other risks associated yeah. that we've just talked about. So it's one of those things where I believe that we are going to become uh, more and more niche operations. Mm-hmm. And, and really the companies that flourish are those companies that have the foresight to recognize that there's value in different cultures and different um, geographies around the world. I, I call it geographic arbitrage. There's some real significant opportunities to, to engage in geographic arbitrage because each culture in each region um, has different gifts and different values uh-huh. that can really, when, when um, applied uh, intelligently, uh, have huge value. Layer over that, all the government regulation, everything else I'm talking about, it makes it very challenging. But again, same deal, where there's challenges like that, there's opportunity for success and bringing value to your clients. So I know I just didn't answer your question. Well, no, it's, but it's, it's, but I agree because it is a very multifaceted question that could come through, you know, is Wall Street behind us, is government behind us? Because government regulation, the process and the last administrations over 20 years, and we've had so many changes in administration last 20 years, a lot of them, you know, didn't invest in certain things that we should have. Instead, we maximizing profitability, maximizing the wrong, 
be this is quite, let me take that back, back to China. China subsidized a lot of their production, a lot of their costs, a lot of raw materials for, for factories to be competitive in the global market, right? For us, we didn't subsidize or invest in it. We just outsourced it to, you know, because we had the know-how. We outsourced it, say, to companies like Southeast Asia or China or even Mexico, you know, and we kind of just got away from that instead of investing into our people and our and keeping some of that here we just let it all go so it could come and you can't blame any these multi-different administrations and i think one thing that we need to refocus ourselves is especially today is you have a we have a long we have a long-term goal we have to have an initiative for you know instead of every 48 years our change direction is a challenge for us you know compared to other administrations you know again go back to china they have a long-term vision because they can look up 30 years sure and they can build for 30 years but if we could do every four years or every eight years and we have to do all these regulations and change parties it causes us as much as we're the most innovators we're most thoughtful everybody wants to be western whether it's the usa you made in usa and we're so pronounced but we democracy have, has a lot of deficiencies and problems and it's not the know-how be-haul you know, democracy is not the best thing that can happen to some countries you know so this there are pluses and minuses everywhere um but these are things i think that together through technology today we can really work ahead and learn from the past yeah it's uh, one of my one of my more significant mentors a gentleman by the name of jim beck um taught me a really interesting um anecdote mm -hmm. business around the world is very much like a, a balloon yeah when you, when you poke your finger into the side of a balloon, it doesn't necessarily come out the yeah. exact opposite. Sometimes it, it goes in a, a completely direction. unanticipated direction. And that's business. Yeah. And that's often life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're like this giant balloon and we put pressure on one end and, and we have no idea of the cause and effect that yeah. it's gonna, that's going to happen. And that's kind of what this discussion is about. So really... Um, the, the next answer is, okay, so, how, you know, for us, what do we do? How do we handle it? Mm -hmm. And so you have to be guided by principles, mm -hmm. um, things that you're willing to do and not to do. And you have to live by them, and you have to stick to them um, come hell or high water. Yeah. And some of that is, you know, making sure that you do everything in your power to, to ensure that your clients never receive substandard material, mm -hmm. making sure that you have the best possible QC, not just systems, but people. Um, holding yourself accountable to a higher standard, even when your customer says, I don't care, just ship it. Because to your point, they need to build something yeah. and they'll take something substandard to do it. I, I'm not going to tell you who the manufacturer yeah. was, yeah. but I'll give you an example. Uh, a manufacturer that, um, that we used to do business with, we don't anymore, that made uh, defib machines. Okay. Uh, they used four, a 4-meg flash. And we bought up every four meg flash on the market to the point where all that was left was uh, material that was compromised, i.e., mm -hmm. you know, counterfeit. I hate that term, yeah. but let's call it substandard, substandard. material. Um, and we told them, we said, look, you know, this, this substandard material, it's going to have a shorter lifespan. Um, there's nothing left. You yeah. know, you're going to have to change your board. And with medical manufacturers, that's always a challenge. And they literally said, well, we don't care. We'll give you a release. Go ahead and ship that product. Mm -hmm. and, and we had to make a decision as a company. Wait a minute. This is going into defibrillation machines. Yeah. I do not want to be the guy machines, who, yeah. needed, who needed that defibrillation <laughs> machine to work and failed because of my flash that mm -hmm. I shipped, even though you said it was okay. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, sir. We're not going to ship it. 
their response wasn't thank you. Their response is fine, you're off the AVL. So, it, you know, even people have a tendency to point fingers at China as bad actors, but there's plenty of bad actors here too. So as a company, you really have to take matters in your own hands and have a set of standards and, and really, I, I hate to use the term morals, but let's just call it uh, um, uh, business standards of, of, of high integrity mm-hmm. and stand by them. So to me, that's the answer. Yeah. That, that as an organization and as a leader, that you set certain moral, moral standards, um, integrity standards for your organization and then stick to them. And then those companies that, that you that you resonate with, then you'll work with, and those that don't, don't. To your point earlier about distributions changed a lot, and I view it as coopetition. You and I were talking offline, and we were talking about our product line and and how we could cooperate in in doing business together. It's it's a different world in that way. It's a different world. There's there's a business anywhere. And go back to your thing. It's like I always say, I'd rather do no business than bad business. And having that moral and ethical integrity, the company's missions and goals, like, you know, I'd rather lose this revenue and not do business because it's our name. It's what happens because it, it, everybody always remembers that one time, right? Always. Always. You can have 99% of all that one time can ruin everything for you. It doesn't matter in the experience of business transactions, an experience going to a concert where the whole concert was great, but that parking situation was a disaster. And all you can remember is that parking because the park, <laughs> right. So, you know, right. It's true. It's yeah, true. You know, so these are the things that happens in your name. It's funny. It's like you build a reputation and in being as yourself or being in a, in a, in a, for three decades in a business, like your name is, you know, that's what you have. And you build this reputation over time. And, it's hard, especially today's markets. Like, how can we get the components? How can we s- serve our customers? They're yelling, complaining down there. They're threatening us. But again, like, sometimes become the therapist, like let them vent because they have upper, higher ups that they're reporting and pushing pressure on them. You know, like they're going to kind of lose their job or the KPIs they have to meet or the challenges because I think we've been very, so heavy in KPIs and some of the, our customers or these OEM and especially EMSs, they ha- they pushing price, pushing price, pushing price, pushing price of lowering, lowering, lowering the price. And at the point is, where's the value come for the service, the total cost of ownership of the product? It's all PPV, right? Pushing the price down, push like, how can I give you that that five star service, um, and give it to you for a one star price? You know, you know, how can we do that? It doesn't make sense. And back to your just in time i think that was really where the just in time was broken because there's too much kpis involved they're very pushing price down um and people don't want to hold liability inventory because there's not enough margin in holding it they're not banks because even doesn't matter what size distributor you are you're holding inventory you're holding liability right so it's it's very challenging now in this in, in this ecosystem distribution i don't in, in any products because we go from okay double-digit margins to stay pushing to single-digit. Like, I can't survive. You know, we cannot survive. If we, you know, we're not publicly funded either. So public funded, they're talking about top line, but we're a small private business, medium-sized business. It's about bottom line for us. Sure. Yeah, and these are the challenges, I think, for the total supply chain is that tier ones will always be there. But the big part of the whole global system is the tier two, tier threes that support the tier ones. If those guys can't survive, how can they feed the tier ones? Because they're building products in some nature and form to support to them. And they're publicly funded. And how do we get that? We had offline conversations. It comes to a cash flow situation. How do you deal with this? You know, they're putting so much pressure on you. 
Um, and it, it's, it, it's come to that because, of course, it comes to the component manufacturers, you know, because components are so cheap these days. Penny parts, and we had an MLCC shortage in 2018. A lot of that was because a lot of these companies don't want to add capacity to their MLCC machines because they're triple low, quadruple low, five parts. Why they add all these lines of capacity where there's no extra profitability? They'd rather work on the high end where they have margin and work on the capacity. But because of the MLCC, 5G, a lot more, the, the form factors, everything's happened. A lot, they've, tantalum has gone away. A lot of tantalum's gone away, and MLCC have taken over that. And because of costing or the form, the size, and uh, it's it's put that pressure on them. And a lot of companies are like we don't want to add capacity. And now they're like, what are we going to do? You know, we all know like Maradas and stuff. Into that, they, they canceled, discontinued a lot of their their sizes. We're like, there's no money in it for us, right? Right. The Japanese are like, this doesn't make any sense, right? Why are we doing this? Unless we raise our prices, we cannot be competitive. And I think that has to do a lot in the component industry is that push of push down on KPI and price and price on PPV has done that. That's we have to look at instead of PPV, PPV of the TCA total cost of ownership of the product. We have um, to build on that um, standing on the shoulders of giants. um, The, uh, the, one of the terms that we've, we've coined and I'm not the only one, but that we like to use is, is it's not about best price. It's about best responsible price. Yeah. And, and if we often have customers who will um, buy a product from another company and then send the product to us to QC for them. And so our approach there is we, we literally tell them, we don't want to know where you got it. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is, is we don't want your supplier to, to claim, well, that's our competitor. Of course, they're going to say our parts are, are substandard, right? Right. Yeah. We, whether, whether you got them from a, from a really solid uh, factory source, direct from the factory or Aero or Avnet or wherever, um, or you got it from uh, some, some small broker who has an inside connection to a manufacturer that had surplus material. Mm-hmm. We don't want to know. So that's that integrity thing. It's kind of a double blind. When we'll do inspections for customers, uh, we we make sure that they understand that we we are happy to participate in them getting the best responsible price, yeah. uh, and uh, that's how we offer that value. So when when we were asking earlier, you know, how do you differentiate? What do you do to bring value? Uh, that's back to that integrity thing, having yeah. the the know how and the equipment and the personnel that recognizes uh, good product from bad, and and hey, no one's perfect, right? But when you have those guiding principles, uh, it, it tends to ensure that you're going to have the best possible result for your client in terms of keeping their supply chain safe. Yeah. So for PCX, what, as you said, you started out uh, going into some of the excess inventories, you know, selling, you know, getting into that and then getting into more the distribution side of product distribution and being a principal suppliers. Really what all, on that end was, is where do you, where is what do you fit in? Like, what, what target segments are you going to? You go in military, aerospace. You go into more industrial. Where where is your guys's area that you really live right now? That is that you know because again you can't go everywhere. So there has to be a spot to be able to focus on and bring value to your customers. It's interesting because uh, we we you could almost segment PCX into two companies because mm-hmm. we have a practice that's very strong in uh, the military and doing business with. 
um, DLA, mm -hmm. uh, Defense mm -hmm. Logistics yeah. Agency, which is the buying arm for yeah. the military and the bases around the world, uh, which requires a whole different compliance. The compliance, <laughs> the paperwork, the inspection, yeah. the packaging. Yeah. Um, in the commercial world, you buy a thousand pieces of XYZ, you put it in a bag, you put it in a box <laughs> and you ship it, you're done. Yeah. The, that same order for the military, even if it's a resistor, gets bagged one in each little bag and labeled in one each little bag. And it may be a five cent component, but the packaging is 20 cents. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the military has been uh, great for us and it's a growing part of our practice. And then the commercial side, uh, we really like to focus on the manufacturers. We deal, we deal with a few contract manufacturers. Okay. So you're more OEM-based. We are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not to say that, that the contract manufacturing base isn't a, a, a wonderful potential mm -hmm. client base, but you know we're a small company, and we talked about this yeah. offline, um, especially in the growth mode that we're in. We can't afford to be giving people yeah. 90 days, yeah. 120 days. And rebates and all the stuff that they ask for, everything, and the jacket and your shoes and whatever you can give them. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the joke, and we don't need to name yeah. the names, uh, Flextronics, but yeah. um, uh, <laughs> I joke that sometimes some of the contract manufacturers, uh, you'll give them parts for free, and they will complain that they got charged shipping, Yeah, right? So yeah. to your point about yeah. always people always driving on price and, and how we push back is that whole concept of uh, best responsible price. Yeah. And uh, that has status that has, that has really treated us well. And the clients that like doing business with us understand that concept and are willing to, and we're not outrageously more expensive than anyone else, but we're competitive. Mm -hmm. But to your point, going single digit is unsustainable. Yeah. It's not possible. You can't have it both ways. Right. So um, that's how we present it to the clients, and they've been pretty responsive over the years, and we're grateful that they have. Because you grow together, and that's the thing. It's, it's over quality, over quantity. Uh, you have to go through quantity to get the quality of the customers and get that, 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 that base, as you would say, of people that can add value. And it's a long-term game. You know, it's a long game. And I, I always tell everybody, we, we always do, especially new salespeople coming in and saying, oh, they want the quick affirmation. They want that affirmation, that dopamine effect, as you would call it. I want that order. I want it now. And because the market right now is, we're in Christmas sometimes, you would say, because people, if you have any allocation, you can get stock, you get the order. It doesn't really matter. The price is secondary now. It's just about the allocation of it. And it, you also have to think about the trajectory of, we've been, you've been in this, you've seen it. This is a cycle. You're like, okay, this is great, but it's going to end. We have to focus on customer acquisition, customer service, the long game, because we have to keep that pipeline. You know, exactly. you know, Christmas can Christmas can happen. You know, once every five to ten years, for in this industry, and that really pushes it because all you know, this is. But we can't take that and lose the foresight of the long term of having that vision because customers also remember. If you start pushing things, you start and you, and you think it like. Just because you have allocation, you have the stock or you have something, I have it. I I rule the world, and I can I can I dead I dictate how this goes. No, the customer, it's a two way street, you know, sure. and they're going to remember that when they come to you and they give, and they you come back to them. Hey, you have the business, the the market stabilizes, and like, hey, what's the orders? Oh, sorry, you know, we 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 prefer we're not preferred anymore because of what happened in the previous because sure. of this. And they, there's talks, so it's keeping that relationship. It's being you know. Um, 
it's it's ethical, as you said, ethical integrity that you have, the company standards, building that into your people. And that's one thing, and to come back to the leadership and how you've been a leader for these last three decades in your company, is how, how what, what's your methodology of leadership? How do you lead your people through turmoil, through pandemic? We just went through the pandemic. The first six months was nobody knew what was happening, right? Sure. How did you lead through that to keep looking forward and keeping your staff, your team, everybody on board to show them that we can get through this together? I tried to really um, be well-educated before speaking. So I, um, I, I'm i in the ha- uh, happy circumstance of having a brother who, who is a professor of genetics at NYU okay. and uh, has NIH grants. And so I relied on his expertise in, in the world of medicine, yeah. especially as it relates to, uh, and he's a virologist. Yeah. So oh, wow. Okay. Coincidentally, <laughs> I, guess, so yeah. I, I have a, a, a secret source, uh-huh. uh, not so secret, in the form of my brother, who really helped me understand how it all works and m- help me make help me be secure. So by sharing that information and, and the anecdote of my brother's expertise, I think that helped calm people down. And uh, we were very quick on uh, getting mass into the building, uh, following CDC guidelines very quickly, um, and really working hard to stay out of the political piece of it and just uh, focus in on caring about our team, caring about their health, caring about their um, uh, ability to, to, to even work in these crazy, confusing, tumultuous times mm-hmm. and, and having the um, and communicating uh, regularly mm-hmm. uh, through monthly newsletters, yeah. uh, weekly um, uh, summaries, mm-hmm. and also as part of that saying, this is what I know now. I'll readily admit that I don't know everything. And if I bring something up that doesn't jive or, or doesn't make sense, or you found out something different, mm-hmm. uh, let's share it together because uh, our tribe, our little tribe yeah. called PCX, is more powerful working together in tandem and and, and uh, tapping into all our tribal knowledge to to um, navigate these turbulent waters than than it being a top-down thing so for us uh we don't like to micromanage we really like to give people the freedom to to execute on 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 their goals and what they want to accomplish in spite of these turbulent times so it's it's um it really is about uh uh, reminding people to be empathetic I, i i think in this day and age Empathy is a, a sorely lacking thing. And, and, and so we talk about, literally, for us, uh, we feel that um, how we treat each other inside the organization is actually more important than our suppliers, more important than our customers. Because if, if we're solid, then we can properly take care of our, of, our, of, of our community of suppliers and properly take care of our community of customers. But if we're not solid inside, then those other those other factions will will suffer because of our inability to do well with each other. So that empathy is really important. I I, I could not agree more, and I love that, and I and I echo exactly what you said. Lead with empathy, especially going through the last two years. We really looked at within people, everybody. You know, people can have divisive of the, their beliefs or what they want, but we all are humans. 
We all have feelings. We all work with each other. And as leadership, as a leader, I mean, that is, I mean, for anybody, for everybody listening, I mean, that leading with empathy was big, especially in that, to get through your team because you're actually holding the roof down. The people have jobs. You have, you know, you don't know. Through the pandemic, I'm going to say even our business, you know, first six months, we didn't know what's going to happen. You know, our business is going to be shut down. But thankfully, we had some customers that are still operating, so we still had revenue coming in. Of course, we did have a hit for a few months. We did for about six months. Our revenue did get hit. And it's like, what's going to happen? What's the future? And you kind of still have to look, be positive. You're holding the roof. You're holding the structure. Every have families to feed. Everybody, you know, around you is like, how do we get through this? But just like you said, having that core, if you have that core value, everybody works together. That, that will echo out to the customers, to your vendors. Everybody will see that. And that really could take you to the next level and have that collaboration. Um, and for us, I mean, I can say for even for our company, we have teams all over the world. You know, we have teams in Hong Kong and China and Singapore and Malaysia and Philippines and India. And they all, I mean, we came to a remote, everybody's working from home. You know, we can't have that face-to-face. And a lot of people went through a lot of emotional, you know, it, it was hard on a lot of people. There was a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. You know, I can't be put in other people's shoes in different countries of how they feel because there is a lot of outside factors. You know, I'm here in California. I have all people in Philippines. I have people in India. A lot of stuff was happening. The shutdowns that are much more dramatic than they were here. We were, you know, we have to be grateful for it, but also keep leading and understand and put yourself in their shoes. You know, don't they all oh, be fine? Like, you know, lead with them and give them that support, that backing, because we want to, for me, it's a big thing. Is that empathy is one thing. Is just understanding that we're all human. It's not all about the money. It's not all about this at the end of the day, right? Yes, it is. But we, if you can give that security to them, you can give them power. You can make them feel. Put a smile on their face. People will say, "Why do you make all these videos and do stuff?" Because I did a lot of this stuff, and no one saw a lot to to entertain some of our staff because I had to make them smile because we went through a lot of dark times. Right, I was doing a lot of things to entertain people. Actually, most of the time, entertaining myself as a lot of people. They laughed at it, but I'm like, I'm stuck in a room, trying to make tricks and do things and stuff. And it was entertaining. Putting that smile, bringing that you know that smile to the people, it changed their outlook. You know, and of course, it builds culture, builds values. But I think every company went through that that challenge. Everybody felt in a different format. You had to do that to your teams because um, work from home was tough, especially people. Um, or their kids couldn't go to school, they're stuck at home, they're stuck at home, there's a lot of stuff happening that the whole dynamic changes. I have to tip my hat to you. Um, I, before we actually got to be friends yeah. and, and got to talk through our um, BWG interaction, yeah. uh, I, I saw your, your videos on, on LinkedIn, and they are great. You know, they were short enough not to, not to um, um, be a distraction, yeah. Um, but had enough content and 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 um, real emotion that you were communicating and empathy and yeah. care uh, that it was really appealing and I and I saw those you started doing that about a year and a half ago yeah a year and a half ago yeah, yeah. I started in our in, in the, I started because no one was in the office and I started making it once a week how's everybody doing I'd give an update for the week I did I think nine of them the three minutes five minutes. I had music in the background. I realized that was the time where I realized like copyright of YouTube music. You couldn't put music, you know, something, <laughs> you know, I got into all that, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. but I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Cause you know, I, I'm like, do I, sometimes you always look at yourself. Do 
I look stupid doing this. I'm like, no one's at work. I'm like, at least I'm putting something out there. And it. I loved it. <laughs> I got to tell you, I really loved it and love it still yeah. to the point where I was like, I got to introduce myself to that guy because yeah. I, I, I need to do something like that, too, because I think that it's one of those things where we all bust our humps all day long to to put food on the table yeah. for our families. And, you know, work is half our life. Yeah. And, and giving an edge of fun and, and compassion like you did is really laudable. And, and like I said, I have to tip my hat. I to appreciate you. it. I appreciate it. And, you know, for me, it was like there was a lot of people behind who helped me. And, and again, you know, it's getting outside your comfort zone because for we sure. all live in comfort. Discomfort is is hard. Putting in front of the camera like, you know, have it's it's you have to get used to it and putting in the reps, just like sales, purchasing, whatever you get into life, sports. You have to put in the reps. You have to get comfortable. You have to make mistakes. You have to really embarrass yourself sometimes, but you learn from that, right? Um, so it, it is uh, the, the video side. And as we said, we live in this virtual world. I dove into something that I didn't think is going to last this long. And we can see we're living in this hybrid version of video. I mean, virtual world is here to last, I think, forever. We're right. going to have more of this virtual world interactions, the type of podcast, long-form conversations, because there's a lot of wisdom out there. You have a lot of wisdom. Everybody in, as a business owner has experiences and wisdom that we need to share, especially in the electronics industry, which is a massive industry, but it's a very small world. It is. And there's there's not enough sharing. There's not enough people helping each other in the industry and also spreading that to the new generation. One of the words um, that I really like and I think is very applicable to your yeah. concept of that interoperability and that, and that connection between distributors. One day you're my customer, one day you're my supplier, right? Yeah. So yep. it, by virtue of that dynamic, you almost are forced to make sure you have a good relationship yeah. with your with your competitor, right? Um, I call that coopetition. I yeah. didn't coin that term, but I love that term. Yeah. And and uh, another kind of ancillary term on the flip side of that is um, um, the concept of of being confrontational. Yeah. So when there's a problem and you're and you're dealing with a, a, a company that is sometimes your customer, sometimes your supplier. Mm -hmm. You treat it differently than you would maybe someone who's just a supplier that is replaceable, right? Yeah. So understanding that actually nobody in your in your sphere is really replaceable, it changes the dynamic and changes your understanding of what's important in the way that you deal with people. Yeah. And back to your question about leadership, that's what the leaders at, at, at PCX try to, to live and breathe every day as they deal not just uh, with our team, but by way of example. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, by example. When, when there's a problem, here's what you don't do. You don't start screaming at people. Um, you, don't, you know, when there's a problem, you don't uh, hang up on them or, or start making threats or mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You really try to work it through, and that goes back to that empathy thing, mm -hmm. that, there, that, that, that that particular company is, is ostensibly trying to do well as well and, and make a buck but do it in a way that is constructive and they're human beings. They put their socks on one at a time, just like you and I do. Yes. So once you understand that and you really try to lead that with your team, I, I find over time it has a, a really positive effect on people's experience at work. Yeah, I 100% agree. And now, I mean, to the, one of the questions I have, because getting to this is we're into the pandemic and how things have changed is leading through that. But how leading through innovation through the company, What? how would you say that your innovation now through digitalization, living in digital world, um, have you set into stone to PCX? What do you think is the future? Like how, how we operate today? What, what, what are the things that you've instilled already and things you're planning on stealing for the future? Great question. Um, 
there's such an avalanche of change going on through multiple disciplines and multiple verticals of business and life that it's hard to keep up with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, we're in this interesting dichotomy of, of really drinking knowledge almost like water from a fire hose. It, it's really hard to distinguish sometimes what is important and what is not, what is just a fad and what's going to trend into something permanent and, and so forth. So it goes back to your guiding principles again, that, that you, as, as business leaders, you have to tread carefully, but, but not taking risks and trying new things is a recipe for failure and, and for your business disappearing. And, you know, the, the horse buggy whip manufacturer is a perfect example, right? <laughs> eventually there was just one and they yeah. were the biggest and eventually there were none, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of similar in this situation. I do feel that distribution is on the cusp of some pretty radical changes. Uh, the internet, uh, obviously, and e-commerce in general uh, has made it so that more and more people uh, have less and less human contact. So how do you bridge that gap? What you're doing is a great example of bridging that gap, which I really admire, and and, and uh, I won't copy your format. Yeah. <laughs> but it's some, I promise. And it's if a, I do... It's I, the greatest I, thing. I, you know, as I said, it, don't, don't worry. I have... You could copy it all you want. Because as I said, that's, it's like a compliment, you know? Yeah, for sure. But, you you, you know, the, that's part of it. The, the, I think the, um, the digital world has had a tendency to dehumanize relations. Mm-hmm. So I think... Any way that you can find as a leader to kind of rehumanize, nice. for lack of a better term, um, to to get clients to have conversations instead of just freaking emails. One of the big battles I and it's not a battle. One of the big challenges I often have with my team is they'll say, "Look at this email the customer sent me. This is so this is so bad. I can't believe they said that to me. They treated me so badly." And I'm like, "That's not what I see in that email." Yeah. So. Emails are so interpretation. Oh, yeah, interpretation! It, it's yeah. amazing. So, one of the things we try to train our people to do is: you get an email, don't assume anything. Mm-hmm. Call them up, have a conversation. Hey, I don't want to assume anything. Help me understand what you meant by this. And so that the the uh, and that's a training thing, right? And that is a, a leadership thing. And so the long answer to your question is. Even though we're digitizing more and more, we we are doing things in a way to 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 humanize things. So, everything from the way that we market to still really pushing, calling clients, not just yeah. sending an email, and even if you have to leave a voicemail, trying to really get the the human piece into is important. COVID has really blown that to bits. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. You and I are travelers. We've I love, love, love visiting yeah. uh, clients. I love, love, love visiting suppliers. And it's really hard to do right now because even if you can go visit someone, you can't get in the front yep. door, right? So They'll come meet you in the parking lot or something. You can't go in because there's protocols and we still have protocols in place. I am looking yeah. forward to, to less Zoom meetings yeah. and more lunches and dinners. Uh, but in the interim, until that is a reality, then Zoom meetings it is. Yeah. Because at the very least, you can read expression, emotion, um, and back to the point of humanizing the 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 um, the digital universe as much as possible. Yeah, and I agree because just like you said, that black and white text is like robotic, and we we are so prone to it because of our handheld cell phones, text message, things that are 
and we we talk so so f- phrases phrases there's sometimes no emotion sometimes people read everything and we i mean i'm guilty as charged that even i've gotten into arguments with my wife sending her subject what do you mean you didn't care about this i mean i didn't mean it you know maybe i should put emoji <laughs> i should put an emoji next to this that make i was sarcastic it was sarcasm you know right, but right. this comes across just like through email through business transactions yeah. because people interpret things different and that rehumanizing that connection building relationship and having a video chat once in a while but knowing who you are understanding because it's personality everybody has personality we have to understand who we are and it is big and you know what that reminds me i want to share a book with called rehumanize your business through video it's a good thing you sort of read i have a book i love that yeah i have a book that um i got uh march of right before the covid shutdown i ran into it at lax um going on a trip going to india i was going on a trip to india and i needed a book to read so i'm like this is exactly what this is 2000 um 2020 it was february 2020 um right when everything started happening i was going to india and I had this, I'm like, this is perfect. It's exactly what I'm trying to do. I was creating, trying to create content, trying to like make a fool out of myself, trying to be a vlogger, all these things. Cause people don't realize there's a lot of, I have a lot of content that I could just create blooper reels because it's hard, you know? And like, I was trying to, but I was, well, I was to lead because I have to lead by example for my people, right? doesn't matter your family, whoever it is, friends, your employees, you have to lead. So you have to get yourself out there and get uncomfortable to learn. So go through that action and lead by it. So I did a lot of that in that book set on the trajectory for me so hopefully i can give that to you can really check it out and maybe and and go through that port of the trajectory of just human again little things it's not about using video for everything just little things that can really change a lot of perspective and build a relationship build a camaraderie teamwork build the value within customers not just as i said i always i, I tell my team is like i want you to send videos to your customers um thanking them for business just thanking them for being a customer why don't you, if you do that to your customer, why don't you send to your family? Send your Hey, guys, I haven't talked to you in a while. I just want to send you a video say thanking you. Don't just have, gra- have gratitude, not just for your customers. Have gratitude for your family, for your friends. How many times have you sent happy birthday to someone through a text message? Instead of sending them a video, I sent all my friends a close PFAM video, 30 seconds of happy birthday. Instead of sending a text message that's just so generic. Because it brings emotion. It brings heart. You could put something in there that means something to them. It's just like getting now a card that's handwritten um, you know, a customer card. I mean, if you get a handwritten card thanking somebody, like someone actually handwrote and sent it to you, it actually means something. Like, this guy actually took the time because right. it's taking the time out of their day. You know, these are the little things um, that could help change the experience, not just for business, but for life in general and building relationships, right? And that's how I look about it. Like we have to lead by that, right? It's, that gratitude out there. It's brilliantly simple. And I, I'm sorry to report that I will be emulating you. <laughs> 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 but I will credit you. I will credit you warmly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will credit you. I promise. Yeah. Now, I mean, coming to the, the, the list, I have a couple more questions. The question I have sure. for you is, as, as you have so much experience and knowledge, and I, go, I love your insight, what is your, I would say, the next year? I mean, not meaning like we know supply chains, but what do you think with technology of how we communicate through supply chain, the digitalization, because everything's, everything's online now. How do you think between, what's your thoughts on the API integrations, websites, how websites work, or going to ERP systems of being more intuitive and using data-based decisions instead of just the manual uh, basis? What's your thoughts about that? So that's a great question. Um, Back and it's and it's actually tangential to the whole concept of humanizing interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, using digitization is really important, but if there isn't a human component to it, i.e., almost everybody has moved to uh, systems that, you know, 
send me this email at best, maybe a, a little dialogue box mm -hmm. that, that you set up with, you know, someone in the Philippines or someone yeah. in India and, and, and sometimes there's a language barrier and all that being committed as a business to having a human being actually answer the queries. Mm -hmm. um, it, the irony is that it, the world I feel is going to come full circle to the realization that, that human touch is the differentiator. Yeah. Um, we're partners in another uh, business called uh, Buya Direct that, that distributes um, uh, industrial products. Okay. And the big differentiator and we kind of stumbled on it by accident. It seems so simple now looking back, but at the time it was kind of revolutionary. Uh, when they go to the website and they go to order something and they call, it isn't just a voicemail. We, we answer no matter what. And we really walk, some of the products are, are pretty technical in nature. And we really walk through them and make sure they understand when we communicate um, the tracking numbers, we, we actually call them and communicate the tracking yeah. number. Then... Uh, send an email that that says what we said in our voicemail but the the feedback that we're getting around that level of service is uh really remarkable i mean uh there's a couple catalog houses we don't need to name yeah. them but they've gotten rid of almost their their multi-billion dollar organizations with almost no sales staff yeah. and and i do believe that over time um smaller players like you and us and mm -hmm. others uh, that re that introduce that human element are actually going to be really successful because people get tired of not being able to talk to somebody. Yeah. And I, I, um, I agree. Cause I think that again, the tier two, tier three businesses, manufacturing supply chain, they still need that. The tier ones are going to work off machine learning process because they're at that level. They run high operating millions of millions. And they just, they're going to have communication machine learning. They're going to have all of the AI based, but the tier two, tier threes, they're higher mixed, lower volume types of production they're going to have more handheld because a lot more, I would say, engineering and things in play. It's not forecasted so long for processes. And they appreciate the customer experience. They appreciate, as you as a supplier to them, understanding what their product is. What do they make? How does it work? And adding value to even maybe enhance their product if you can. A product that enhances it. Because if you're just dealing black and white, you never know. You're just selling a product to them off a catalog. How do you know what they're building? How can you add value to them? You're actually you're expecting them to come to your amazing website that does all parametric searches and and they're just going to do everything and pick and create their. But you're not actually what type of value actually bringing them of the system is not going to add value. Yeah, they can design something that works, but the, as I say, the empathy of process, you know, the challenges they might face, or you know, thinking out sometimes outside the box that they never thought about. You know, these are things I think into innovators, startup companies, smaller companies, they need that human to human interaction through engineering, through, you know, supply chain, through the purchasing methods, through process. I think digitalization, in my opinion, will be more and more. I think data will tell the story. I think we're much more data focused because I think data tells the story and can make better calculated decisions using data through systems, through machine, through in intuitive systems. But again, the human needs to be there. 80% can be done by a system, but 20% still needs to be done by the human that can still have that interaction and say, hey, here's the story. I have the system here, but what do you think? You know, this is what it shows, you know, and because things are multifaceted. You, don't, you can't judge a book by its cover. The data sometimes doesn't tell the whole story because there's a lot of indirect factors that come into it. So I think in any industry that comes into any type of supply chain that are producing something, that have multi-verticals of, of supply chain and products coming in, um, 
machine learning is not going to do it all. You know, machine learning Agreed. is not going to do this all. There needs to be a fitment. That's why I say like there's still sales reps and then there's distributors, sales reps are the sales arms. Um, but we add value and it's, it for me is for the future to add to that a little bit to your um, digitalization side. I think people want to have that more digital presence is going to be there. It's going to, they're going to want that. They're going to have, they want companies. Oh, did they have this cool thing on their website? Do they have this? Are they going to use it a lot? No, you can brag about that. You have it, but at the end of the day, there's still going to be the, you know, but I think the new generation, this Y generation, the Z generation coming, there might be more, not confident me. They don't want to have more interaction. And that's the challenge because the technology is doing that to the new generations. They don't want to have as much interaction because they're more just behind a screen now. That's a little scary. Yeah, you know, I, I wrestle with that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I never thought that I'd be the, uh, the, the older statesman yeah. in the room, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and not have that, uh, and, and not have the, be able to claim youth anymore. Yeah. Uh, but with that comes wisdom. And, and one of the things that I, I, that I feel is important as leaders is to be wise enough to recognize that even though there may be generational differences, that, um, that the, our younger generation is still men and women who put their socks on one at a time, just like you and me. Right. Yes. And, and even though, um, certain skill sets around face-to-face communication may not be as prominent, I do feel that, that. The younger generation will rediscover that um, by people like you and people like me who really believe that introducing uh, a human aspect into into digitization is going to be really important to to rising to the top of success. I I 100 percent agree um, with that. And it's it's hard. We can't predict the future. We couldn't predict what happened with COVID and the process. But again, what the funniest part was we're using a technology that virtual communication we had facetime five years ago six years ago right right we had all this stuff many years ago we, we didn't use it, it. <laughs> we got the pandemic was the accelerator to push it to use this so yeah. now it's cost it's changed the ecosystem it's changed the process but there's a lot of it there but we're communicating more of a virtual than we ever have and people are interacting more um and i actually think there is more interaction because people are more comfortable now with True. Which um, before they were traveling me, but now like, you know what? Hey, I've never met you before. And I would always talk to you, but you know what? Let's have a virtual call. They might, the, before pandemic, they probably never want to do that. But now they have all the equipment because everybody's prepared. Everybody has it. It's in built in the laptops where they have cameras and they invested into it because I mean, if you didn't invest into camera or microphone during the last two years, then I, I don't, I'm sorry for you. Probably yeah, working. yeah, you're working. Yeah. <laughs> or you're, yeah, you know, whatever you're doing. That's why I kept telling everybody. I'm like, you guys, it was funny. The first three months, everybody was like still not turning their camera on. I'm like, guys, we're in a professionals. We're showing up to the meeting. You got to look the part, be the part. Don't we'll just work from home and roll out of bed. You know, there's a lot of things that we joked around with when we we're like, some guys, sure. what do you, what's going on here? Just because you work from home doesn't mean you can let your, I mean, I just say sometimes let yourself go, but because it's, 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 it's comfort, right? Sure. It's comfortable. We always like to live in the comfort, but the most growth happens in discomfort, right? The most gain of knowledge happens in discomfort, discomfort. And that's why I always tell even new generation, stop being, we have to seek discomfort and seeking discomfort as myself, leading my curiosity, my, dis- my curiosity seeks a lot of discomfort. I get a lot of, put my foot in my mouth, some conversations I don't want to get into, but I'm like, you know what? That was amazing. Yeah, I f- learned. Philosophically, um, 
it can be really easy to generalize and to um, finger point at the differences uh, between generations. Yeah. But I, I really don't think there's an awful lot of difference. I just think that there's a level of comfort around certain technologies yeah. that, that you and I didn't grow up with as kids, right? Um, uh, gaming wasn't really a thing when we were kids. Yeah. We had, you know. The the Nintendo or the there Nintendo. was like Atari. Back then, <laughs> the Atari. there was Comedy, <laughs> Commodore 64. The Atari just came out. That was back in the 80s, 70s, 80s. I mean, that was, that was the Apple. Even that was the in infancy of the, of the compute coming to the I agree. I, I think that as leaders, as, as long as we um, remind ourselves to have that empathy, mm-hmm. um, I, I, as I've gotten older and as I've, uh, and as I've continued to learn and grow, uh, I've really discovered that the more I can communicate the concept of empathy, not just for each other, mm-hmm. but for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have this conversation once or twice a week with one employer or another where I'll be like, don't be so hard on yourself. Like you made a mistake, big deal. As long as we learn from it, that's all that matters. I don't care if you make, I on, I can honestly say, I don't care if someone makes a mistake. I really don't. As long as we learn from, from it, it, you know? And, and so that's part of that self-love and that empathy thing about yeah. it's okay to make mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Don't be, don't be so tough. Cause a lot of times the, the, the younger generation I find will make a mistake and they'll run from it. Instead of embracing, well, yeah, because they don't. There is insecurity that comes into play. Back to that self empathy, self empathy. That insecurity is that comes because there's too much information, and uh, sometimes the the world of likes that we live in because social media, everything's about liking this or not liking this. True that, and that's the thing. With you know, it's okay. You're different. It's okay, and leaving leading with you know leading with empathy. It's okay. It's okay. We'll get over this, and then. That calming down as a leader, um, it is. And you know what? That's what I got to say that this whole thing is I really a- appreciate you coming in. This, that's leadership. And I think you've been the epitome of understanding that everything that we've talked about has gone back to the requirement of leadership and leading with empathy through this process, through a pandemic, through digitalization, through process of business economy going up and down. It doesn't matter pandemic or not a pandemic. We still have to lead the same way. And, and ironically, yeah. uh, sometimes people think that um, empathy is a, is a soft skill. And the irony is, is sometimes, sometimes being really direct and holding someone's toes to the fire is the ultimate expression of empathy. Yeah. You care enough to be uncomfortable facing that situation with someone about an uncomfortable topic to share that with them so they have an opportunity to grow. And, and so empathy is not a soft thing. It's actually a really tough thing, and you have to be tough to be able to be empathetic. And I think, well, the biggest skill in empathy is listening. True. And that's the number one thing, because you can't, you can't empathize if you don't listen. What did you say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, very much. Gil, I really appreciate coming on The Real Talk. Thank you for sharing this. This has been great. This Likewise. has been awesome. Thank you so much. Again, we've we've you know we have a, we can go into rabbit holes of things. We can go sure. into days, but uh, of course, you know when things happen, I love to have you back on. Sometime we talk about different subjects, things we love get to. into, and I uh, really appreciate and I really appreciate the new friendship and what we have going on. And hopefully, we can work better and closer together in the future to come. Thank you. Likewise, yeah. and I, I got to say it again, and forgive me for being repetitive. I am so impressed with what you've done here. So I appreciate. It. Thank job. you. It's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you very much. And yeah, and we're out. Thank you very much.